Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As you are now well aware, this podcast is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. At Agora, we like to bring together groups with different perspectives to allow a free flow of ideas. And it's in this spirit that this month we are highlighting Alison Gerlach's unapologetic capitalist. Allison has a graduate degree in economics from MIT and years of experience in the field of venture capitalism and entrepreneurship, which she utilizes in her show to help people figure out how to make the right decisions for growing their business. If this sounds like your cup of tea, check out the show at the unapologeticcapitalist.com or on iTunes. Just as a reminder, my show is still accepting donations. Not to put too fine a point on it, but any amount that you can donate will help me keep my mind on the show when I'm writing, and off of things like student loans and car payments. If you have a few bucks to spare, swing by the website, wittenbergtowestphalia.weebly.com, and go to the store page, where there is a donation button. In return for donating, I will give you a cool regnal name, which I will be reading on the air, unless you don't want me to. If you don't have any cash to spare, I understand, trust me, but you can still help. Written reviews on iTunes or whatever platform you use are a big help. You can also email me at wittenbergtowestphalia at gmail.com or contact me via the Facebook page, Wittenberg to Westphalia. One thing to note here, a number of you have actually been friend requesting me personally on Facebook, which is fine, and I've been enjoying getting to know you all, but the official Facebook page is really the place to go if you're looking for show information. My personal feed is, as you know, personal. I know a few other podcasters who absolutely refuse to accept friend requests from listeners, which is something I haven't wanted to do, but just please be aware that my Facebook feed is going to be full of me arguing about politics and pictures of my baby and my mom reads it, and it won't necessarily have anything to do with history. Anyway, as always, thanks for listening. After his death, the kingdoms which had obeyed his authority, just as though a legitimate heir were lacking, dissolved into separate parts and... Without waiting for the natural lord, each decided to create a king from its own guts. This was the cause of great wars, not because the Franks lacked leaders who by nobility, courage, and wisdom were capable of ruling the kingdoms, but rather because the equality of descent, authority, and power increased the distorted among them. None so outshone the others that the rest designed to submit to his rule. For Francia would have produced many leaders capable of controlling the government of the kingdom, had not fortune equipped them to destroy each other in the competition for power. Abbot Reggio of Prum
Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. You are traveling from Wittenberg to Westphalia through the wars of the Reformation. I, as always, am your humble host, Benjamin Jacobs, and today I present to you, the listener, episode 21, Guidos Rex Francorum. Two episodes ago, we looked at the totally metal life of Guy II of Spoleto, a.k.a. The Rage, and then left Spoleto in the hands of his uncle, Guy III. We looked into the abdication and death of Charles the Fat, and I offered a somewhat speculative interpretation of the events surrounding the final breakup of the Frankish Empire. Today, we will bring those two stories together, as we see Guy III move from humbled regional player to high-stakes imperial gambler. But before we do, I'd like to give a shout-out to the librarians at Roger Williams University in Bristol, Rhode Island, and at Clark University, my alma mater, which is located in beautiful Worcester, Massachusetts. Unlike some Ivy League schools I could name... The folks at these institutions were not only very open about allowing me to peruse their collections, they were friendly and helpful in aiding me with my research for today's episode. It's nice to run into institutions that retain a commitment to the free flow of ideas, unlike some others that I could name. And the fact that one of these schools is my alma mater fills me with an emotion that I'm very unfamiliar with. Apparently it's called pride, but I may need to do further research. Moving on. Let us begin with a short recap of Guy III's career. Under his brother, he was given his own small duchy on the borders between the Papal States, the Lombard Territories, and Spoleto. This was part of a peace deal signed between Lambert and the Papacy back in 876 that had been brokered by Charles the Bald, and part of the deal was that Guy would help the Pope fight the Saracens. This guy did fairly effectively, and although he was never able to drive off the Saracens permanently, we are told in the Lombard Chronicles of a number of rather brilliant battles fought under Guy's leadership. Guy also, following family tradition, made sure to utilize any campaign he undertook as a way to expand his territory into the Lombard territories into the south. And so we find the two brothers weaving in and out of the Lombard Chronicles, meddling in southern affairs. As was family tradition, we always see Guy or Lambert showing up in the middle of someone else's fight, making friends with everyone, and then taking what he wants, all while playing the peacemaker. As we saw two episodes ago, Guy was a loyal follower of his nephew, Guy the Rage, in his nephew's invasions of the Papal States in northern Italy, uh, loyal to the point that the one is rarely seen without the other in the Chronicles. Nonetheless, upon Guy the Rage's untimely plague-related death in 883, Guy is able to make peace with all involved. This was actually a fairly quick turnaround, and the ease with which Guy III pulled off this diplomatic coup is probably somewhat confusing. There are two main factors in this peace deal. First, there was a new pro-Gadeshi pope at this point, probably elected by a strong pro-Gadeshi faction in Rome. Since the war was instigated by Guy the Rage's assault upon papal lands, and was escalated by the use of non-Christian mercenaries, having the pope suddenly on side really removed a lot of the impetus for any vengeance-seeking that the other parties to the war might have had. 
The second thing permitting Guy's easy reprieve was that the Empire, in the guise of Charles the Fat, had other concerns. The death of the two elder sons of Louis the Stammerer had left Western Francia with only two legitimate contenders for the throne. The first was Louis the Stammerer's youngest son, who had actually been born after his father's death and was at the time an infant. The other was Charles the Fat. Though Charles was the leading contender for the throne, it was by no means a foregone conclusion. If Charles was to take the throne, he would need to get the backing of the Burgundians, and Simon MacLean points out that Guy seems to have had some kind of family connection to the Burgundy area. Indeed, it was one of these Burgundians, a Bishop Gellio, that ended up crowning Charles as King of the Western Franks. For reasons we will discuss later in the episode, there's some reasons to be skeptical about this family connection, but at the very least we should note that if Charles the Fat was going to assume the throne of the chaotic and Viking-infested Western Francia, he was going to need to devote his whole attention to the effort, and so he needed the Gadeshi issue resolved. With the Pope on side and Charles needing peace, Guy got off on very light terms indeed. So Guy III in many ways lucked out. But I think that it's also important to discuss at this point what we know of Guy's personality, because I also think that helped. We have, of course, no direct evidence of Guy III's personality. We don't have any letters or writings or anything like that. But we do have the actions uh, recorded in law and public impressions recorded by the chroniclers. These portray him as a popular and likable individual who used his charm and charisma to further his family's interests. It's ultimately a roguish and attractive picture to a modern reader, despite the obvious hatred displayed towards this character by the chroniclers at the time. By the time he took the ducal throne in 883, he certainly had a long experience as a successful diplomat and military leader, roles that were often very much intertwined in the early Middle Ages, and which both required an inspirational personality. In later parts of his story, we are told that Guy was able to outmaneuver his opponents simply by being more popular. We have seen him be loyal to his family, as was the case in his support of his nephew, while at the same time having no problem switching allegiances on a dime, as he did with the Saracens repeatedly. He was capable of caution and bizarrely outrageous risk-taking. One gets the impression that Guy III was an affable, likable person, an inspiring leader, and the kind of guy who could talk the skin off an onion. So in 889, Guy III was a popular duke, who had firmly consolidated power and made peace with such of his neighbors as mattered, and who was in the process of dominating those that did not. All the same, we should not forget that it was only a few years earlier that saw Guy and his brother fighting both the papacy and the empire, fighting in alliance with the Saracens. Many at the time may have had mixed feelings about the swashbuckling new Duke of Spoleto, but for the moment, all eyes were on Northern Europe, where Viking raids and legitimacy issues had begun to erode support for Charles the Fat. If the waters around Spoleto were calm for the moment, Guy III would soon show that it was only the eye of the storm. As we saw last time, there are as many questions as answers concerning the events around Charles the Fat's abdication, and the relationship of the Gideshi to that event is as opaque as anything else. Adding to the source and chronology issues we discussed last time, the chroniclers of the time dealt with the Gadeshi only tangentially in relation to events in western or eastern Francia. Indeed, the only really full description of events comes down to us via Liutprand of Cremona, and Liutprand has some problems. To say he was biased would be like saying an Atlas V rocket has an engine on it. I mean, it's true 
but it's an understatement so severe as to be dishonest. Liutprand took the understated art of historical propaganda, so common at the time, and turned it into an early medieval equivalent of yellow journalism. The man was a machine of vitriol. Just for example, while describing someone as an acolyte of Satan was fairly common at the time, Liutprand would invent pages and pages of fanciful tales about a person's satanic orgies. Even Liutprand's contemporaries did not really know what to do with him. Though many approved of the targets of invective, the degree to which he straddled the line of fiction and fantasy was somewhat unsettling. So Liutprand's value as a source is uneven, to say the least. The narrative I'm presenting today is one agreed upon for the most part by modern historians, and has been arrived at by cross-referencing things Liutprand claims with events understood from other records. For example, if I say Guy moved through an area, gathering supporters, we know this not only because Liutprand said it, but because we know that a bunch of people who had been living in the area before ended up somewhere else later, connected to Guy via legal documents. Obviously, I've not done most of this work myself. I owe a great research debt to Chris Wickham and Simon McLean, among many others. That said, what we have for these events remains very skeletal. Not too much English-language research has focused exclusively on the Gadeshi, and the Italian-language studies are not what you might call academic work of the highest order. Still, what we have is fascinating. When Guy received word of Charles' abdication, whenever or however he did, he likely gathered what was probably a moderately-sized retinue of mounted retainers and began moving north. He bypassed all the old enemies that had occupied the last few generations of Gadeshi men. The road to Rome passed away to his left, and the road to Ravenna, Friuli, and Venice passed away on his right. As he moved up the Po Valley, he neared Pavia, ancient seat of the Lombard kings and Frankish administration. But this too passed away, as the Gadeshi force continued north and west. We can't know which pass they used to move north of the Alps, but cross the Alps they did into Burgundian territory. Guy was there to meet Bishop Gelio of Langres, the clergyman who had once consecrated Charles the Fat as king of Western Francia. The relationship between Guy and Gelio is unclear, but it was apparently some kind of familial relationship. Or, maybe it was a feudal relationship, it depends on the translation. What is clear is that Gelio was the nephew of an important local noble named Adelbert, who was the brother of one Archbishop Folk of Reims. These three men, or at least a few of them, met up with Guy in Langres, and there Gelio crowned Guy king of the Western Franks sometime in early 888. Hooray! Hail Guidus Rex Francorum! There was some problems with this crowning. Shortly after the ceremony, as Guy and his retinue were preparing to move north, a messenger arrived with exciting news. Guy was not the only person to declare himself king. Arnulf of Carinthia had been elected king of eastern Francia, which would not have been much of a surprise. Of a greater concern was Rudolf, patriarch of the Welf family and ruler of Burgundy. Luckily, Rudolf was out of town, as he had already invaded the Rhine Valley after being crowned king. There was also Louis, son of Bosso of Provence, who had escaped from Arnulf and set himself up as king of his ancestral territories in Provence. But these issues could be dealt with. Guy was hoping to secure the throne of Western Francia, after which he could deal with these other claimants. But then he learned that Odo, eldest son of Robert the Strong, largest landlord in northern France, slayer of Vikings, the man who fought his way out of and then back into the Viking siege of Paris, beloved of the Frankish aristocracy, and all-around terrifying individual, 
Well, he had been crowned king by a diet of some sort, despite having no direct tie to the Carolingian royal family. What to do? Guy had little direct support in the region outside of the lands held by Jellio, Adelbert, and whatever family lands he might have had. These are the times when bold, daring men must stand up and fight for their rights. Take the chance. Roll the dice. Cross the Rubicon. And so it was that Guy III stood up, gathered together his retinue, and slowly backed out of Burgundy, hoping that no one would notice he had been there. Yes, that's right, folks. Guy III, Duke of Spoleto, pulled the Sir Robin and ran back to the Alps, lips a-bubbling and demanding that someone help him change his armor. The chroniclers tell us that Guy made this decision when it became clear that Odo had already been elected. But we should note that around this time, Arnulf of Carinthia had responded to Rudolf's invasion and beaten the snot out of him. With Rudolf's army heading back into Burgundy, and opportunities north of the Alps increasingly in short supply, we probably shouldn't blame Guy for legging it. We should also note, again, the loyalty this man generated, though, as we see much evidence in the historical record that a number of major families in Burgundy followed him back across the Alps at this juncture, though of course they also may have been motivated by the fear of facing Rudolf and Arnulf. Of course, in Italy, things had not stood still either, and according to the chroniclers, word reached Guy on the road that Berengar of Friuli had declared himself king of the Lombards, i.e. king of Italy. Guy may have been in something of a panic at this point, because he was separated from Spoleto by half of Italy, and depending on Berengar's level of support, Guy might be facing the prospect of fighting his way home. Guy had, after all, been crowned king, and could have been viewed as something of a traitor. But when Guy emerged from the mountain passes, he was the picture of confidence, and he rapidly won over the countryside. Pretty soon, he had not only made it back to Spoleto, he had declared himself king of Italy and raised a large army to back up his claim. With the Pope's support, Guy was soon able to gather most of northern Italy onto his side, and though the war raged back and forth for many years, by 891, Berengar had been forced back into Friuli, and Guy III of Spoleto had been crowned as Guy I, Holy Roman Emperor, by the Pope. Okay, so let's take a minute to catch our breath and reflect on what just happened. Guy III, Duke of a duchy in eastern central Italy who had, not three years before, been condemned as a traitor, has crossed Italy and the Alps and tried to declare himself King of France. He then realizes that there were a lot of big kids in the pool and maybe he should just go back to the splash pad, at which point he shows up back in Italy and then basically just sweet-talks it away from its new king. What the heck just happened? The first person I think we need to talk about here is Archbishop Folk of Reims. He wasn't in the narrative much, but he looms over the records like a spider. Podcast footnote. This is a different folk from the one who wrote the chronicle of this period, just for the record. End podcast footnote. Folk was an important guy, because at this time the Archbishop of Reims was a bit more than just an archbishop. It was a well-located place, uh, which had very deep connections with the Frankish court politics, going back like three generations. Folk's predecessor, Hinkmar, had a rap sheet that included contradicting St. Augustine, having a bishop blinded, causing a civil war in Lotharingia, and trying to get himself set up as vice-pope. Seriously, the guy is a podcast into himself. Check him out. Folk may not have left as many theological tracts or bleeding enemies as Hinkmar, but he was very much in the Hinkmar mold in terms of policy. Which is to say that he supported the Carolingian dynasty to a fault, 
was in favor of legitimacy, and he spent most of his time in power interfering with imperial politics to the detriment of both his other policy platforms. For the purposes of our story, it's important to note that Folk had some sort of long-running feud with Odo of Paris, though when this started it is unclear. Importantly, Folk was somehow related to Guy. We don't know how. Chris Wickham describes Folk as some sort of relation, quote-unquote, to Guy III, and that seems to be as much as the Chronicles say. There's some discussion amongst historians that it might have been a legal relationship rather than a blood relationship, but that requires getting more into church Latin and feudal legal procedure than I am comfortable with. The key point is that Folk was the brother of Adelbert and that the two were also related to Gellio. So this seems to be some sort of transalpine family alliance, and one is very strongly tempted to think that Folk was at least initially the brains behind this operation. He was much more of an imperial operator than Guy was. Guy spent his entire life in Italy before this point, as far as we know, and only got involved in imperial politics to try and preserve his family's freedom of movement. Folk was also much more likely than Guy to have some kind of inkling that Charles the Fat's reign was in trouble. Uh, finally, he was involved in court politics and attended diets and hung around Charles and may have noticed that he was sick or something. Finally, for Folk, Guy might have seemed like a solution to a problem namely the lack of a clear successor to Charles the Fat from within the Carolingian clan. As we've discussed, there were only two male line relations to Charlemagne at this point, one of whom was an infant, and the other of whom was Charles the Fat. There was a third one, Arnulf of Corinthia, but he was probably illegitimate, at least in the eyes of churchmen like Folk. There's certainly a much larger pool to draw from once you get into female lines, which might have made Guy's claim seem less impressive, certainly did to most contemporaries, but Guy could have claimed that he was the product of the family of the eldest son of Charlemagne, uh, if you'll remember Pippin, which might have given him some seniority. More likely, Guy was powerful enough to bring a reasonably sized army to the table, while also not being a friend of Arnulf of Corinthia. Folk may have seen it as a key to simply move quickly and crown someone as a fait accompli to avoid any kind of civil war and the fracturing of the empire which is sort of what ended up happening. Thus, many historians think Folk invited Guy to come north, and certainly Adelbert and Gellio were firmly committed to the plan, so much so that when Guy fled into Italy, they went with him. But then, we have no letters, so all the stuff about intentions is mostly speculative. And there is a problem here in terms of the timeline with Charles the Fat's abdication. This all happened really quickly. Any version of these events requires Folk to have had at least some foreknowledge of Charles Auster, because presumably he would have needed to have been discussing the plan with Guy a bit before it was executed. Even if the plan does come off as a bit half-baked, even a Gadeshi could hardly just wake up one day in the Middle Ages and go, hey you guys, get on your horses and drag out the family treasury, I just got a vague letter from northern France and I'm going to be king. So this has the potential to seriously contradict the version of events we discussed last episode, which is sort of why this period is so fun and fascinating to me, and has been such a distraction from the early modern period. Anyway, the, the, this contradiction wouldn't be the end of the world. We're deep in speculation land, and maybe this new data could be useful. But there are some other addendums that we can make to fit these narratives together. First, we know that Folk was an imperial insider, which means that he was active in Charles the Fat's court. We know, for example, that Folk had attended multiple diets held by Charles. It's possible that with this contact, Folk saw how Charles was losing control of the situation. 
Or maybe he just saw that Charles was a very sick man, as he was. The plot was maybe conceived as a way to replace Charles when he died, whenever that was, which maybe folks sensed was imminent. Possibly, the abdication caught the conspirators a little bit wrong-footed, which might explain why the plot was not totally developed. This version of events would reinforce the version I discussed last time, and presents the image of Charles Court as one rife with conspiracies for his removal. The action taken by Arnulf just happened to be the first and most competent, which left everyone else running to catch up. More broadly, this helps explain why the Empire dissolved so quickly. If every court faction was already plotting a succession plan, even a legitimist insider like Fulk, the plethora of competing claims can be seen as the results of plans that had already been made going off all at once and in parallel, rather than as a wholly spontaneous reaction to events. So if we accept this narrative, that Fulk had been planning something with his relatives for a little while before Charles abdicated, with the purpose of putting a legitimate candidate on the throne in Western Francia, the results of this plan become fairly interesting. Because the first and most immediate impact of Guy's aborted run at the French crown was the removal of the pro-imperial Gellio and Adelbert from Burgundy, as they followed Guy into Italy. This effectively removed a huge pro-imperial force from Rudolf's territory, right as he was about to be granted de facto independence by Arnulf. This in turn made the total breakup of Western Francia much easier a process Archbishop Fulk would further aid by switching his allegiance from Guy to the infant King Charles after Guy fled Francia. Podcast footnote. Just in case you're confused, the narrative for Rudolf is that he was crowned king, moved into Lorraine, the Rhine Valley, probably around the time Guy was crossing the Alps, just because they probably would have come to blows otherwise. Arnulf then moved against Rudolf and took over Lorraine. Arnulf set his son up as King of Lorraine and made peace with Rudolf, who had moved back into Burgundy at this point. Rudolf acknowledged Arnulf as king, but otherwise was left alone as independent ruler of Burgundy. I understand this is confusing, there's a lot of moving parts here. I'm not going to have space anywhere else to run through the foundation of France. The rest of this mini-series and the one that will follow are going to focus on Germany and Italy. I have been trying to figure out how to shoehorn in the story of the foundation of France so that later on in the series, when Cardinal Richelieu shows up, it's not like he just pops out of nowhere. But it hasn't happened. So I think the best way to do this is to release a short supplemental episode in the next week or two, running through those events very quickly. So yay, extra episode, end podcast footnote. The second interesting thing to note is that in Western Francia, Guy represented the Carolingian insiders, as sponsored by Folk. Folk and his co-conspirators were, after all, trying to set up someone to be king with an actual claim to the throne. Possibly someone who would be on their side, or who would look after their interests, but someone who is a blood relation of Charlemagne. The entire plan was made to look ridiculous by the enthusiastic uptake of Odo by the people of Northern Francia. Odo was a member of the aristocracy, but his relationship to the Carolingian ruling family is tenuous and would date from the time of Charles Martel at the earliest. Between this and the rise of Rudolf and Louis and Arnulf and Guy and Berengar, we can start to really understand what Regino of Prum meant when he said that the various parts of the empire brought forth kinglets from their own bowels. From his point of view, Odo could have been anyone. There's a huge amount of shock and confusion evidenced in the response to his election by Folk's party. This is all strongly in contrast to Guy's arrival in Italy. 
In Italy, Berengar was the one connected to the Carolingian clan's inner circle. They both had fairly similar claims to the throne, but Berengar was a favorite at Charles the Fat's court, and had been Charles' man on the ground in Italy. By contrast, Guy was an outsider, a traitor. He allied himself with Saracens for crying out loud. Many historians, who are much smarter than me, view the split between Berengar and Guy as evidence of a pro-French versus a pro-German party, since Berengar's connections were largely across the Alps into Bavaria, while Guy's family ties were into Burgundy. I disagree with this view, to a large extent, because of a complete lack of a thing that we could describe as a France or a Germany at this time, but also I think there's something a bit more fundamental going on here. Berengar's assumption of the kingship was very business as usual, since legally he had already basically been ruling Italy for a few years at this point. Now that he had a title of his own, he set about making the kind of good government reforms that everyone probably knew were needed in their heart of hearts, but which the local nobility resented. Then Guy showed up with the backing of the Pope and two bishops, and he rapidly flips everyone to his cause. The chroniclers assert that this was because Guy was simply more popular than Berengar, which may be true, if only because the Gadeshi did a much better job of integrating themselves into the Lombard gentry than Berengar's family had. But I think there's a case to be made that Guy was promising a different kind of kingship from Berengar. Guy never did try to institute the kinds of centralizing reforms attempted by Berengar, instead focusing on leading military campaigns, securing loyalty through personal connections, and otherwise leaving the nobility to rule as they saw fit. Some historians describe this as Guy, quote, never controlling territory outside of his ancestral holdings in Spoleto, as if this made his claims to kingship farcical. But as we've seen, in the Middle Ages, this was often just what kingship was. And I think that that doesn't diminish his claim to kingship. And so it was, I think, that for a little while at least, Guy was the king the Italians wanted, or at least such of the Italians that mattered. The ones who, you know, owned more than a hundred human beings. All that changed with the death of Pope Leo and the election of Pope Formosus, but that is a story that's going to have to wait for next time. For now, I'd like to thank Surf and you for listening. See you next time on From Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.